While it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. And so she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciples, the one Jesus loved, and said, They've taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they've put him. They told all these things to the eleven and also to the others. And it was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary, mother of James, and the others who told this to the apostles. But they didn't believe the women because their words seemed like nonsense. So Peter and the other disciples started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at all the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. And then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. And he, Peter, went away, wondering to himself what had happened. Finally, the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went inside. He saw and believed. Still, they didn't understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. They didn't believe the women because it sounded like nonsense. Too crazy. Not crazy now, is it, boys? Now Mary, alone, at the tomb, stood outside crying. And as she wept, she bent over to look inside the tomb and saw two angels in white, seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and one at the foot. And they asked her, Woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. He asked her, Woman, why are you crying? Who is it you're looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've put him, and I will get him. And Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned towards him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. And Jesus said, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them that I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord. And she told them what he had said to her. Resurrection always begins in the dark. This day begins the way Good Friday ends. And Easter is slowly revealed. As the sun rises, we have a word for that. Dawn. The noun literally is about the physical rising of the sun. But the verb can be about the realization of something now perceived. It fits. The circumstances being experienced will soon dawn on those who know where to look, but don't understand what they're seeing. This is such a crazy moment in this little scared community of Jesus' followers, when the women try hard to convince the disciples that what they currently know is not complete. If I ended here, this message, I think we've summed up Easter. What we all currently know is not complete. Jesus is not where he should be. Not really anything unusual in that statement. Jesus wasn't where others ever thought he should have been. But when the sisters run to tell the brothers, 
They sound ridiculous. Luke recalls being told that they sounded like nonsense. Plus, in this culture, a woman's word is worthless. It's worthless in court. It's worthless in society, even religiously. Easter already demands that that change. But in the economy of God, the women get the win. The disciples whom Jesus loved made it to the tomb first. Do you know who wrote this account? John. And he calls himself the disciple Jesus loved. Well, of course, he won the race to the tomb. He's writing the story. Peter was most likely long dead by the time this gospel was written, so no one's going to contest. It doesn't matter who made it to the tomb first, because they both saw the same thing. Or should we say, they both didn't see the same thing. They didn't see anything, which is nothing. But they both interpret nothing differently. Did you know that there was that many different ways to interpret nothing? Yeah, and more. But something interesting happens in John's account of these events. It says that as he stood there in the empty tomb, he believed. But in this moment, John didn't believe Jesus was resurrected. That concept still isn't fully a concept. He can't comprehend it. Like we've been talking about in this series leading up to today, first century followers of Jesus had no context for this idea. That's why they struggled so much with Jesus telling them of what will happen. But John believed that Jesus was not where he was supposed to be. John believed that something unexpected was happening, and he was in the middle of it. This is a moment where anything can happen. And what makes this so incredible is that they must have played out the script in their minds of what the next few days were going to be like, because that's what fear makes us do. Right? That's what anxiety does. That's how we become anxious. We play a movie in our mind of the future as we foresee it. We catastrophize. These disciples had enough content for a feature film. Everything they had represented is a failure. The rabbi dead. But John believed. The question I have when I sit in this empty tomb looking at him is in what? I'm sure I could see it on his face, but I really want to know, what did he believe? And yet, I do know. I know that feeling. And so do you. When you're facing what you believe to be something terrible, something undeniably dark, and then a flitter of hope begins to manifest you don't know everything. And what you currently know isn't the whole story. It's not that it's inaccurate. It's just incomplete. Daniel Goleman, author of Emotional Intelligence, a great book, he, he writes that we actually don't know enough to be pessimistic. Because at any time, anything can happen. I like that. It's true. I have found that to be true. John believed in something, in enough of something. Without all the details, he believed the room was empty and that that alone must mean something. John's minimal belief that there was now mystery to what he thought was fact. 
John's flirting with optimism is the beginning of resurrection. Resurrection is hope where it shouldn't be. Life where it shouldn't exist. A glimmer of light breaking through the east after a long dark night. I think that often reading this story backwards, we make the mistake of thinking that faith for us doesn't need that to exist. After all, the disciples and Mary experienced it for all of us. Unfortunately, that just isn't true. As we have followed along this journey from the first week, we called this our Easter journey. Five weeks ago, we held the idea that if we follow the story of Jesus heading towards Jerusalem, that it could be our journey too. And if we kept following, we find ourselves to where he's taken us. And that's here, in disbelief. You see, Easter is more than an event. If all it was was an event, we could just remember it, we could commemorate it. Then I would merely just defend it, try and explain it. Some would want to argue it, but I'm not even remotely interested in trying to prove this story. And I don't know many who think that this is a completely unbelievable story. I talk to them and they say, I, I, it's just so unbelievable. I just, I struggle with it. And you know what? They're absolutely right. It is unbelievable. And it won't be the last time that God will do things that are unbelievable in your life, in someone else's life. Let's not try and make this believable. Let's not try and define it and dissect it. Instead, let's choose to be like John, who made a choice to have faith in an empty tomb. He chose to believe not because he saw something, but because he saw nothing. His faith wasn't based on proof. It was a result of the lack of proof, which for him was evidence of something remarkable. I think he was thinking something that I have thought many times. There is a chance, a good chance. I could be wrong. Now, I'm trying to be okay with mystery. I'm trying not to try and explain everything away. And there are times in life when mystery is better. We live with this flutter of hope because nobody knows everything. And that is what resurrection is about. That is what John is experiencing. And sometimes that's all we need to get us to where we need to be. I know that the mystery that is resurrection is real, because I believe that Easter is more than an event. It's a beautiful idea, an event we just remember, but an idea we get to experience. Easter Sunday reminds us that not everything is set in stone. In fact, sometimes the stones are missing. The moment you have faith to believe that things can change or even that there is going to be, that there is more going on than what you know, that you can trust. Wow. Most translations use the word believe, but that word is also translated as trust. For all those moments when you felt out of control, yet you thought you knew enough to be able to predict how this was going to turn out. And then the phone call. The knock at the door, the envelope in the mail, the sun breaking through, the meeting of a new friend, the reacquaintance of an old one, an explanation, a diagnosis, a new job, the peace and the pain, the kindness from a stranger, the hope and despair, a good night's sleep, the promise of a brand new day. Resurrection is all those times you wonder what has happened. This is what resurrection feels like. This story is already exciting and they haven't even found Jesus yet. See, resurrection happens all around us whether we notice it or not. 
If the women didn't go to the tomb, how long would it have taken for them to find out? How different would it have been? But they went back. And what we observe is a clue to something that I've discovered that has saved me many times in the past decade or so. They went back to busy themselves in the small details of preparing a body for burial. They were in shock for sure, most likely a bit of denial, some anger perhaps, some bargaining. Yeah, they're experiencing all the stages of grief. And we can relate, can't we? We've all been there, paralyzed by our circumstances. And we can find ourselves in one of several camps. In those times, we're shocked by our news, by our biopsies, by our phone messages, our texts, our emails, our debts, and we hide. We just don't know what to do. We're overwhelmed. Been there many times. But Mary models for us something so beautiful here. She's just as scared as the men. She's just as hopeless. But she does the very next thing that she knows to be right. It's so simple. It's something that that needs to be done. So she gathers spices to anoint the body of her rabbi for burial. Mary, in her despair, sets out to defy the paralysis of fear. She models something for all of us here. To do something so pure and simple. No thinking's required. And make no mistake, it's in that small act that she is the one who sees the divine first. Blessed are those whose hearts are pure, for it is God that they will see. My point is, resurrection happens all around us, but some see it sooner than others, and not because they're looking for it, just because they're present for it. I have found that often in the presence of the most simplest pedestrian tasks, when I feel hopeless and lost, that life surprises me. Making a meal, sending a note, cleaning the house, going for a walk. Mary reminds me to be present at every stoplight. Not because there's something amazing at every corner, but if there is something beautiful there, I won't miss it. If you think about it, John, Peter, and Mary all looked into the same dark tomb. They all saw different things. Peter enters the tomb first, saw the linen that was supposed to contain his beloved rabbi and walked away wondering what happened here. John enters. After Peter's gone, he looks around and trusts that not knowing everything in this moment is one of the greatest things ever. He believes. He leaves believing in nothing, but it's the biggest nothing he's ever not believed in. And then Mary, when she's all alone, looks in the tomb. For some reason, she lingers, and she sees two inside the tomb, two angelic messengers, and turns around to see another, one she mistakes as the gardener. It seems the biggest miracle in this moment was that Mary stayed long enough. She lingered, whether it was intentional or unintentional. Perhaps her grief is what kept her there. Maybe it was her sadness that stopped her from leaving. Whatever it was that she was feeling in those moments, they gave her the greatest gift. It was Jesus. She wanted to hold on to it, but this moment wasn't something to hold on to. It was something to transform her. Regardless, be careful of quick conclusions with anything in this life. 
What happened two days ago in our lives can look entirely different in the dawn, in the light of a new dawn. So if you're searching your empty tombs for God, if you feel you've come up empty in a desperate search for that which is familiar or safe, this day reminds us all that joy and hope like Jesus doesn't stay where they're put. They rise. Turn your gaze from the darkness and listen. You may even hear your name. God has mistaken has been mistaken for the gardener. I've mistaken him for a nurse, a stranger, many, many times. And remember, transformation happens in the divine presence, but not when we're holding it, when we let it hold us. So Heavenly Father, loving God, what a story. Some would say it's unbelievable, that it's just too big, and it is. It's so big, it's enough to hold all of us. And may the light of all it desires to mean for us cast out the darkness of despair in our hearts. May it hold us in its hope, and may you transform us by our love, by your love, and in turn, may we do likewise. And may the hope of Christ rise in our hearts. Thank you.